0: On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I have a very special guest. We have someone who's actually climbed a mountain, literally and figuratively. We have Allison Levine on, who is an unbelievable guest and even draws some parallels between sports betting and answers the penultimate question of whether Giannis's season was a failure. And with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the
1: process. Bet, I bet, 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 the process. Welcome to the podcast, bet the process. It's not the typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for pics, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking. We're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom
0: line is watered down. Welcome to a very special episode of the bet the process podcast where rufus and i have a exciting guest on today who is not sports betting related at all but hopefully will enrich the lives of our
2: seven listeners rufus how are you doing you know i'm doing great That's
0: i'm i'm excited well for this it.
2: interview i'm excited for this interview
0: um but before the interview what is going on in your life like are you you're in new york you haven't bought a place yet um you're presumably betting a lot of golf and that's about it right now right
2: betting golf yeah this is kind of I don't want to say the doldrums of the year but because there's a lot of golf to bet there's another three tournaments this week at least three major tour tournaments but been doing a lot of r d stuff
0: are you gonna what's the d project is there anything new for football or for Uh, Right now
2: it's more golf infrastructure stuff. I'm just trying to get things set up so that I'm going to be less involved in the future. And, and uh, it feels like there's always things that are sort of partway done that I, that I want to sort of complete to production quality. And, and I'm going to actually try to get there. Did you
0: have a tilted moment of the week?
2: You know, nothing that comes to mind.
0: You know, we asked,
2: maybe, maybe Wyndham Clark winning. We we bet on him all the time over the last few years, it feels like. And, and of course, when he wins, we don't have him. So. Got it. There's that. Uh,
0: Terrell Hatton was right up at the top for a while. I thought you were going to get that. You called that out on the show.
2: Hostler was, you know, up in contention after the first two rounds. And then he did what he does.
0: He did what he does. Um. My tilted moment is in a world where we continue to um, hemorrhage money in baseball had a um, moment Saturday night where I was joking with the guy that I'm working with on it, that we were going to go over 10 and I was trying to do the power of negative thinking. And it actually looked for a moment, like we were going to recover to go um, five and five instead. And um, we just had some of the most colossal meltdowns, we had uh that in that um that Houston Astros uh Mariners game the Astros were up by 3 two outs nobody on in the bottom of the 8th <laughs> and proceeded to give up 7 runs with <laughs> two outs and nobody on that that's pretty Gosh, good you have that's... to admit from a from a from a perspective and then there was a game there was a week last week where i think we had Two favorites that we'd gotten at like one minus one twenty overnight and they closed like minus one seventy
2: and we lost both of them without even without it wasn't even close. So <laughs> you know you, you're saying the 0 and ten thing reminds me of uh it was the round four, not this past golf tournament the week before, um when I was out in Vegas with you, Jeff, and I just remember looking and, and apparently our matchups, like our primary round four matchups went 0 and 8 and we ended up with, a t- we'd bet like 150,000 on round matchups and our overall return was negative 130,000 on it. So it went from being like a, <laughs> looking like a good, a golf week where we, you know, be up at least high five figures to being down high five figures. Yeah. Well,
0: that's the life of a gambler. Um, we're going to welcome in, um, Alison Levine, who is our guest today. And I, I wanted, because we don't really give her a, a very good intro, um, for the, for the interview, because we kind of just jump in there and we get super excited about it. Oui. But I, me, um, but, um, yeah, she's, she's a pretty amazing person. She's, com- um, completed the adventure grand slam, which is, um, skiing to the North and South pole and summoning the highest peak on each continent, she led the all first women's American women's summit of Mount Everest. Um, She's a very, very good uh, speaker. So if you ever have an event, you should bring her in. She wrote a book um, called uh, what's on the edge on the edge. And Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it was a New York times bestseller. Uh, She's a friend of mine. um, So that's probably, you know, the more important thing, just kidding. But uh, we were really excited to have her on um Rufus, is there anything you want to say before
2: we jump to the interview i was gonna I, I was i wonder if anybody's ever completed the grand slam in one year do you wonder why they call it a grand slam i mean there's not four things
0: right there's like seven nine things or something like that right how many continents are there there's seven continents right
2: there are as far yeah. as i know unless they like or yeah i mean there used to be nine planets also and now there but are now there's so. ten no, didn't Pluto lose its status? So maybe someday something. Wait, I thought Antarctica there were ten. Isn't there like
0: status. the 10x, ten X ten? It's Pluto. People figure no, that, out that Pluto's was your cu- that was
2: your old company, Ten Xer. Is it people figured out that Pluto's just a moon? Is that what it is? I don't know.
0: We need to have an astronomer, an astrologer, on here to help us figure this out. An astrologer, no. Okay, yeah. we'll welcome in Allison Levine, and then we'll talk to you guys all again on the other side. Uh, Hold on, let's start that again. Um, We now welcome in Allison Levine, who is a very special guest for us because she is not a better, um, although you are sporty, right? Like, I think it's pretty cool that you actually were like, can we reschedule this interview because the Warriors game is going to be on and (laughs) I want to watch the Warriors. Um, That was a rough game last night uh, for, for all Warriors fans. But Allison, for our seven listeners that we have, um, tell us a little bit about like who you are and you know, what, you know, I, I can do my great intro on you, which is like, here, I'll do my intro first. And then you can tell me what I get wrong. You led the first all women's summit of Mount Everest, although you didn't quite get to the top, right. Which we always well, talk first about First
1: American women,
0: American women, what American was the- women's team. What was the uh, what was the first women's?
2: Where were I there? think oh, there was a British. Chilean team uh-huh.
1: that made an attempt before we did. So there was an all women's Chilean team before the all women's American team.
2: Did you get yeah. further up on the mountain though?
1: No, I think they summited, and we yeah. turned around 270 feet from the top in a storm. Rah.
0: So what? Explain to everyone about that because that's kind of like the most famous. Like I think at least your for like uh, in terms of your origin story. The idea that you led this all women's summit, but didn't make it to the top, right? Which is right. like, it, it, you know, how is that as a, you know, but without getting into that, like there's a, there's a really interesting analogy from the NBA playoffs that, that happened earlier this year, but describe to us that scenario and what happened there for first off, I guess, and I'm all over the place cause I'm super excited, but what, what made you want to summit Mount Everest in the first place?
1: Well, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, I, when, when I was younger, I was very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and the Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers. So I would read these books and I'd watch these documentary films because I, I loved these cold places because it felt like an escape from the oppressive summer heat in Phoenix. So I love stories about cold places. But I never thought I would go to those places because I was born uh with a hole in my heart, which got bigger as I got older. So I had a lot of health challenges as a kid. Well, I finally had my first didn't surgery Pat when I fix was fix that. Pardon?
0: Didn't Pat fix that? A hole in your heart? <laughs> I didn't Just as
1: a veteran. Oh, yeah, you did. Um I had my first surgery when I was 17. That one didn't work so well, but I had another one when I turned 30. And at that point, this light bulb went on in my head. And I thought, okay, if I want to know what it's like to be these polar explorers going to, you know, Antarctica up to the North Pole, then I should go to those places instead of just reading about them. If I want to know what it's like to be these mountaineers going to these big peaks and I should go to the peaks instead of watching films about them. And if these other guys can do this stuff, you know, why can't I do it too? So I find my first mountain in 1998, about 18 months after my, my second heart surgery. That's how I started and then, uh, in in 2001, I got a phone call asking me if I wanted to serve as the team captain for the first American Women's Everest expedition. We got sponsorship from the Ford Motor Company, so uh, because we were the first American Women's Everest expedition, we had a ton of media coverage, which made it all that much harder. When we did not reach the top, when we did not achieve our goal, we turned around 270 feet from the top in bad weather. And it just felt like such a punch to the gut to have such a high profile failure, right? Where the media was covering it. You know, I was the butt of Jay Leno's opening monologue joke when we got back. There was just so much focus on the fact that we failed. And that's what made it, I think, so hard and just feeling like you let people down. That was hardest thing for me.
0: Well, so, so that was the oh. word that I was going to use because earlier in the playoffs, I don't know if you followed, but when, when Giannis at a when he lost the, one of the reporters asked him, was this season a failure? And he kind of went off on how, you know, Michael Jordan played this many seasons and all did all the seasons that he didn't, uh, when the championship were those failures. Are you okay calling that a failure that first trip?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a failure. And it was so hard because, you know, we had to do all this media after we came back to talk about what happened and explain what happened. And 270 feet from the top is so close, but we lost visibility in this storm. So we had to turn around. And it, the hard part was everybody was so focused on the fact that we didn't make it. And nobody seemed to focus on the fact that we were the first team of American women to even try something like this. It was a altitude record for every single member of the team, but everyone just focused on the failure. And I will tell you that it took me eight years to get up the guts to go back and try it again. So I did go back and summit in 2010, but it took me eight years because I was so worried about what will people think if I don't make it again? What if I fail again? Will I ever get another corporate sponsor? Will people ever invite me to be part of their expedition teams? But what I really had to embrace is this mindset that failure is just one thing that happens to you at one point in time. It doesn't define you. It's one thing that happens to you at one point in time. And that's really the, the mindset that I had to embrace in going back a second time eight years later.
2: So it's interesting that you call this failure because in my opinion, or at least from my perspective, it seems like it was things completely outside of your control. And turning back was probably a life-saving decision. And yes, so
1: turning back turning back was definitely the right thing to do. I always tell people that turning back from the summit is never the wrong decision because you have to remember the summit is only the halfway point. And when it gets dangerous is when people think that the summit is the goal. And most of the deaths that occur on Mount Everest occur after people have reached the top when they're on their way down because they use everything they've got in them. They've got, use all of the energy in their tank to get themselves to the summit and they forget that they have to get themselves all the way back down. So I always tell people turning back is never the wrong decision. You can always go back and try it again. But if you do something dumb up there, you may not have an opportunity to try it again.
2: So were there any lessons learned from that or was it more of a, this is, this is, this was an unfortunate uh, outcome of, of this trip that we didn't make it, that we we didn't summit Mount Everest, but there wasn't anything we could have done differently. You know, hopefully the weather gods just shot like shine on us. uh, I mean, look, sometimes
1: you just have super crappy luck, right? You just have shit luck and you have to accept that. But the bottom line is that we did fail. The bottom line is that we didn't make it. Yes, it was an altitude record. Yes, we were the first team of American women. But when you look at did we get it done or not? We did not get it done. And yes, it was because of something that was outside of our control, but we still had to accept the fact that we didn't achieve this goal. And I think there's a lot of lessons you can learn all along the way, but sometimes it is, you know, it's things that are out of your control and you really can't make excuses about it. When it comes to did you make it or or didn't you? Did you win the championship or didn't you? You can come back with all these excuses, but there's only one answer, yes or no. And I think, you know, what was good for me about that first trip where we didn't make it, though, is that when I went back eight years later, I knew a hell of a lot more about my pain threshold, about my risk tolerance. I knew what it felt like to be up high on a mountain in a storm, because on my second attempt in 2010... We also had really bad weather. And I thought, okay, this is how, this is, you know, what we turned around in eight years ago. And I, at first, I thought, well, maybe I need to turn around again because I started to get really scared because I was losing visibility and I started to get really nervous. But then I thought about another mindset that I really tried to embrace is that you can be scared and brave at the same time. You cannot retreat when you feel fear. You can feel scared and brave at the same time. You don't have to let fear stop you from moving forward. And I also learned that you don't don't have to be the best, fastest, strongest climber out there on the mountain every day. You just have to be the person who is most relentless about putting one foot in front of the other because the people that make it to the top of Everest are not always the the most skilled climbers. They are the people who are the most determined and will not quit when they're incredibly uncomfortable.
2: So we, can I ask then, going, going back to, to the first attempt, knowing it sounds like, as you said, your pain threshold increased, your bravery had increased. Would Do you think you would have summited or would have made a different decision back on that first attempt if you had the wisdom and experience that you had from... Uh, all your other attempts or all ah, the good say.
1: question. I don't think so only because as the team captain, you want to put the team's health and safety above all else. And also having a big sponsor in the Ford Motor Company. Yes, we felt like we disappointed them. They were fabulous. By the way, they flew out to LAX to greet us with flowers and big welcome back signs because we when we flew back from Nepal, LAX was our point of entry into the US. So they came and met us there. Ford was phenomenal, but just feeling like you let them down, right? They pay for the entire trip and you want to unfurl the big Ford motor, you know, company banner at the top. But if anything had happened to anyone on our trip, what, a—I mean, it wouldn't just be so tragic for us, but just for our sponsors and everybody else involved. And, you know, looking out for people's health and safety always has to be the number one goal, right? Number one goal of any climb, come back alive. Number two, come back with all your fingers and toes. Number three, come back as friends with the people that you're with. Maybe goal number four, goal number five is get to the top of the mountain. And um, it's, you know, it's a shame how many people dismiss your efforts if you didn't get to the top. Oh, you know, when we got back from Everest and People, people, you know, I went to this one, I went to a dinner party shortly after I got back and the host of the dinner party was introducing me to the other guests there. And he said, oh, hey, this is my friend, Allison. She just climbed Mount Everest. And then this guy sitting across the table from me said, oh, no way, all the way to the top. And then I had to explain that we turned around just a few hundred feet from the top, less than 300 feet from the top in a storm. And he said, oh, okay. so so you you didn't climb Mount Everest And I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. I was on that mountain for two months, right? And 270 feet from the top is not that much different than being at the top. It didn't feel any different. When I got to the summit in 2010, I didn't feel like it was this big life-changing moment for me. You know, first of all, obviously, I was thinking about getting back down safely, but what I was really thinking about and processing at the time when I got there were all the lessons I learned from that previous failed attempt in 2002 and how those lessons helped me right it helped me understand my risk tolerance more it helped me understand that I don't I don't have to have absolute clarity in order to keep moving toward a big goal cuz that's what I thought before you got to have perfect clarity you got to be able to see you have to have perfect visibility no there's going to be times where you don't have visibility but you don't need perfect visibility to put one foot in front of the other and to keep going. And that's how you get to the top of a mountain. You just think about putting one foot in front of the other. That's it.
2: So you mentioned that safety is the number one priority, but inherently there are things outside of your control there. And so how, like, for example, the Kumbu ice fall, like that must be uh, give you nightmares, right? I mean, you're just like, please God don't roll snake guys uh, as you're going up that, but how do you sort of say, okay, what happens happens. I've done everything I can, but I know that I, you know, I know that I could die. We could die here through no fault of my own.
1: Right. So for, for listeners that aren't familiar with the Kumbu Icefall, Google this, um, not right now, cause I'm still talking, but afterward, Google, Google Khumbu Icefall. You can see the photos. You can see video of how treacherous this part of the mountain is. And it's actually the most dangerous part of the mountain. And I was never not scared going through that icefall. And it doesn't help me at all when people, you know, I would get to the edge of one of the rickety ladders that you have to go across. And it doesn't help me at all when people say, don't be scared. Oh, okay. Thanks for that. Now I'm not scared anymore. Thank you so much. I'm in the deadliest part of the mountain and someone's telling me not to be scared. No, I'm going to be scared. But I just, I had to learn how to use fear to propel myself forward But the other thing is because fear, I just had to learn to use it as a tool that would help me instead of hold me back. So fear keeps me alert, aware of everything going on around you. You should be damn scared when you're going through the kumbu wise fall. Um, And I think that when you aren't adequately feeling that fear, that's when you're at risk for becoming complacent. And so fear is okay. Fear is just a normal human emotion, but complacency is what will kill you in these types of situations. And so when I think about also, when I think about the risks that are present in these types of environments every day, I've really, over the years, kind of changed my view of big goals and risk. And I used to be very much a go big or go home person, right? Don't we all love that go big or go home attitude? Yeah, let's rally, let's go big or go home. Well, over the years, I've seen too many friends and really talented elite climbers go big and not come home, right? Not come back from a climb. And so I'm trying to change that go big or go home mantra uh, to go big and go home, right? Not go big or go home but go big and go home, have big goals, take big risks, do things that scare you, but make sure you realize at the end of the day, the most important thing is coming home to the people that you care about and who care about you. And so there are risks that I used to take years ago that I, I won't take anymore because it just doesn't seem worth it after watching so many of my friends lose their lives in these kinds of environments.
2: what is the, what- something like reverse. an avalanche. I was going to say like you 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 could say that and but I feel like part of the part of the going big is there is this inherent danger. I mean like someone like um I saw the alpinist a year or two ago which I thought was a fantastic movie and I Fabulous actually didn't movie, know highly I didn't know it. the I didn't know the ending. I didn't know that the uh, the ending beforehand but but you can I mean I think Marc Andre lived more than most of the most people do in their whole lives in in however many years 20 something yeah, i just
1: uh i just actually last weekend spoke at the memorial service for a friend of mine who's been a friend since we were 12 years old and he was the first guy to climb and ski the seven summits uh and you know, he really lived an, an incredible life. I feel like he lived more in his 57 years than most people do in a in hundred years. And he he, we're not actually sure how he died. It was either a brain aneurysm or a heart attack or something. He didn't die doing something risky, but, you know, it makes me really think about the fact that we have one shot at life on this earth. As far as I know, look, Maybe we have multiple lives. I don't know. That'd be really cool, but I don't know for sure. So I know we get one. And at the end of the day, you know, when, when you're lying on your deathbed, you don't want to think about dreams that you didn't pursue, right? You want to say like, I gave it my best shot. I did everything. And I think about this for my friend, Chris Haver, who just passed away, climbing and skiing the seven summits, did a cage fight for his 40th birthday, Took a bunch of friends, took a bunch of us to Antarctica to do the first ascent of an unclimbed peak in Antarctica in 2016 for his 50th birthday. And so I think there's a lot of adventure to be had in this world and it's okay to take risks, but you you do what you can to mitigate those risks and make sure you think about the end of the day, you got to come home to the people that you care about.
0: Interesting. So just switching gears a little bit. Curious about like what training looks like for you in, you know, when you get ready for one of these big trips.
1: Oh boy. Okay. So I will say that my training regimen is a little bit controversial because I wrote about it in my book. I have a book called on edge. I wrote about it in my book and it seems to be the chapter that most people will call me out on and say, this doesn't sound like a good idea. But the the best way to train for a big climb is you've got to get out to the mountains. No amount of running, swimming, cycling will really prepare you for a big climb. So you want to simulate what you're going to be doing. So for me, when I was climbing Everest, I was living in the Bay Area. So I would would drive up to Mount Shasta, about a six-hour drive from where I lived. And I would start at 11 o'clock at night at the base of Mount Shasta. So Mount Shasta is... Oh, a little over 14,000 feet. So I'd start at the base of the mountain around 11 p.m. midnight with a super heavy pack because I wanted to train you know, uphill on a steep slope at elevation with a heavy pack, experience the altitude. So I'd start at 11 o'clock at night. I'd climb all the way to the summit and back down in one push. With a heavy pack on, it would take me about 16 hours. And I would climb through the night with no sleep. And that that's the part that's controversial because I, I wanted to practice sleep deprivation because when you're on a big mountain, your summit day might be 16, 18, 24 hours, and you're going to have to climb through the entire night with no sleep. So I wanted to train my body to perform at an elite level with no sleep. So I practiced sleep deprivation in addition to my physical training. Now, is it good for you to go without sleep a bunch of times? No, it's terrible for you. but I didn't write a book about how to live to be a hundred. You know, I <laughs> wrote a book about how to get through the toughest of times when people are counting on you. So for me, part of that training was training with a lot of sleep deprivation, just so I could get used to having to perform, you know, at, at a high level on no sleep.
2: Did you then get yourself well rested before you, you went to Everest?
1: Yes, I did. <laughs> I did, but it's also very hard to sleep on that mountain. It's hard to sleep at altitude, your heart rate increases, uh, you you know, at altitude, sometimes you'll wake up in the middle of the night gasping for breath, there's always, you can count on a super heavy snorer in the tent next to you or sharing a tent with you. So, uh, so it's hard, it's hard to get a lot of sleep. I feel like when you come back from that, uh, a two month Everest expedition, you're just in a, in a sleep coma for, <laughs> for weeks.
0: Um, so Mount Everest, climbing Mount Everest is not the only thing that you've done. You've done what's called the adventure grand slam, right? So of all those, um, other feats and including Everest, which is the hardest that you've done?
1: So the adventure grand slam is climbing the seven summits. That's the highest peak on each continent and then skiing to both the North and the South pole. So Everest was definitely the toughest one I think, but I'll tell you what, what is a close second was spending almost two months skiing 600 miles across Antarctica from the edge of the Ronnie ice shelf in West Antarctica, all the way to the South pole. That one was really hard for me because I trained my ass off. I, I mean, I dedicated myself to training and being prepared. I did everything I was supposed to do, but because I was physically so much smaller than everyone else on the team I was the slowest, weakest person on my team because basically the law of physics dictates that somebody, you know, my teammates who are six foot four, 230 pounds, can drag a 150 pound sled of gear and supplies a lot more quickly and a lot more efficiently than someone who's my size. I'm five, four, about 110. So, you're skiing for 600 miles and you've got this mammoth sled, this 150 pound sled that's harnessed to your waist. And that's how you carry all your gear and food and supplies. And so, I just, I could not keep up with my larger teammates. Even the next, the next smallest person next to me had probably 50 pounds on me. And being the slowest, weakest person on the team, not only was I struggling physically, but I was struggling psychologically, feeling like I was I was the person holding us up. Because I mean, we all know what it's like to have that one person on your team, right? Whether it's in business, in sports, on an expedition, there's always that one person that you wish you know would perform at a higher level, you know, be more dedicated, try harder. There just there's a weak person that tends to slow the team down and hinder progress. And I would always wish that person away. Why am I stuck with this person? I wish they weren't on my team until I became that person, right? I was that person that was slowing my team down and no amount of training, preparation or willpower was going to change the fact that I just wasn't big enough to keep up with these guys. And so my teammates had to, my larger teammates had to actually offload weight from my sled, and put it in their sleds to lighten my load so that I could keep up. And it just was a really rough experience for me because I, I, I want to be the MVP on every team. Like chapter 10 in my book talks about having a mantra, a mantra that describes you. And mine is count on me. I want people to know they can count on me. I am the person that shows up. I am the person that gives it my all. Like I said, I want to be the MVP on every team and be a a rock star contributor. And I was the opposite of that on this expedition. And it just absolutely emotionally crushed me.
0: What does the future look like for you? You have any adventure left in you?
1: Well I feel like I always have adventure left in me. Uh, I'm living in Colorado now at a little town called Morrison so I, I love the fact that I can get out to all these 14ers on the weekends when I'm whenever I'm home. Um, my long-term goal is I, I want to have a dog rescue for older Labrador retrievers and golden retrievers who are 10 years old and older but uh, I still do have a lot of adventure in me. I don't have anything really big planned right now, but that could change tomorrow because I tend to not plan these things too far in advance. I tend to just have an idea that pops into my head and then I try to kind of pull it together <laughs> or someone else will call me with a good idea and we'll, we'll do something fun. So I'd love to go back to Nepal and do another unclimbed peak. I did one of those in 2016, a 23,000 foot mountain called Kangkarpo. So I'd like to go back to Nepal maybe and try another unclimbed peak. I absolutely love it over there. And I love doing a first ascent of an unclimbed peak because there's no beta on the mountain. There's nothing at all. And you have to just go out there and figure it out. And I like the strategy part of it in addition to the physical part of it.
0: We're going to lobby for the dog rescue to be called Rufus's Dog Rescue because Rufus, isn't that a great, isn't that a great name for a dog? Yeah. it's a great people? name for a dog. Um, last question for me. Have you ever quit something? Do you think it's ever okay to quit something?
1: Yes. So one of the first climbs I ever did was a mountain in Switzerland called Monta Rosa. It was really my first time I had been to Kilimanjaro, but that's not a technical climb. You can just walk all the way up that mountain in your hiking boots. I'm on Monta Rosa. There's steep ridges. There's crevasse danger. There's snow and ice. I'm in my crampons. It was my first time at altitude on a technical peak. And we were just a couple hundred feet from the summit and I hadn't eaten enough and I hadn't hydrated enough. And I was really super dehydrated. And when you're more dehydrated, you feel the altitude more. And I just felt like I was about to pass out and I didn't have the strength to keep going. And we turned around just a couple hundred feet from the top, and I really felt like I let down my climbing partner that I was climbing with that day. And he knew I was running out of steam and he didn't want to take any risks. And he, I said, I just feel like I'm running out of steam. He's like, let's turn around. And so we did turn around, but I, I regretted quitting because the reason I quit was not something that was outside of my control. It wasn't avalanche danger. It wasn't weather. It was the fact that I had not taken care of myself well enough. I hadn't taken in enough calories. I hadn't hydrated well enough. And I felt incredibly guilty about quitting because we had to turn around because I didn't do my job of taking care of myself. So that was, that was a tough one, I think, to, to think about afterward, but I'd rather try and fail than make the decision to quit.
2: Right. As long as,
1: again, like keeping health and safety in mind.
2: Yeah. um, No, it was interesting what you said there about, but, but it sounds like, I mean, you, you, I, I, first of all, this ties a lot to the Buddhism, but, but sort of the, the idea of patient acceptance, accepting where you are and not wishing things were different. And basically by turning around, you were like, you, you did that. You, you didn't like, it's just the fact that you hadn't prepared well enough in your estimation, shouldn't come into play and making that decision at that point. This is the information you have. This is what's relevant now.
1: Well, yes, I agree with that. But the other reason that quitting, turning around and giving up on the summit was a good thing is because I remembered that regret. I remembered that regret. And then in the future, when I thought about, you know, oh, should I turn around? You know, maybe I'm, you know, maybe it's not the right, maybe I shouldn't keep going. Should I turn around and just thinking, oh, wait, I remember like all the regret I felt after that. Same thing after I eat an entire pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I'm like, why did I do that? I regret that. But that actually doesn't stop me from doing it again and again. But I, afterward, I'm like, oh, I I need to remember this feeling. Shouldn't eat the whole thing. I should have only eaten half of it. But it's the same thing. You know, I think about that, that climb on Monterosso where I turned around and thinking just that feeling of regret and that feeling of questioning. Could I have made it if I had just you know, brought a couple extra goos with me and, you know, or whatever energy gel it was. Uh, So I think when I, when I remember the feeling of disappointment for quitting, quitting because of something that was within my control, that kind of spurs me on to keep going in the future.
0: Got it. Rufus, you want to ask the last question about sports betting?
2: Oh, I was uh, the one. I, my first one on the, our our document.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean,
2: I feel like she's answered that a little better. Um, I was gonna gonna ask what the similarities are between gambling. Well, you should for allude to what
0: you think the similarities and are, and then yeah.
2: I was gonna and and I was gonna say that it both seem very very process driven, um, where you have to deal with things outside your control, um, and you have to focus on what you can control, and then be okay with whatever happens. But
1: Yeah, absolutely. You do you have to be okay with the outcome and you have to think about the risk and are you prepared to risk, you know, whatever you bet, or you have to think I could lose all of this and are you prepared for that? Um, but also, you know, doing your research, digging into the stats, you know, looking at the numbers, like really evaluating all the different variables that you can rather than just doing something in a haphazard way. Ah, let's just wing it, right? Like you want to Look at all the variables, weigh all the variables and make good decisions based on the data that you have.
2: And the mental side, I think, even more dealing with failure. Cause when you when you're betting on sports, you are gonna like, I mean, I've never had a losing year or anything, but I've had stretches of four or five months where I didn't make any money. And and it's like, is my edge gone? Right. I mean, so you have to be able to, you're gonna have the just like you're gonna just like you've had you've had expeditions that did not quote succeed. Um, it, it, in terms of getting to the summit, but you have yeah, to. Cr- you have to handle, of
0: faith, yeah. right? Yeah. So, Allison, thanks so much for joining us. This has been awesome. Um, Definitely given a little bit of a uh, different perspective to our seven
2: listeners. So we appreciate that. <laughs> I, I could pleasure. literally. Thanks for having me. I could ask you questions for hours. So Jeff has had to cut me yeah, off. Okay. Thanks, Allison. So that was
0: our interview with Allison Levine. Hopefully, you guys all liked it. Um if you guys like, well, that's That's all that's really important. Yeah. If you guys like that, tell us on Twitter, because like we can do more stuff like this that is not necessarily sports betting specific, but
2: has parallels to sports betting. Well, it's Um, process specific, I would say. And I think that to me, I saw a ton of parallels to, to what I do. Yeah. I mean, I think the stakes are a little
0: higher though. Right. Oh, of course. That's the, and, and so ultimately, you know, like, the, this idea of and we didn't really cover it the idea of death like how does how does she like accept that death could be the result at any time at any
2: level of what she does right i thought you were going right. to ask that because you would talk to me I, I, right that's what i was trying i was trying to ask that kind of but the sort of the kumbu icefall is this uh it's a section of, of everest climb where um it's really dangerous because it's very unstable and you, and there's a ton of avalanche risk. So you just basically are praying that, you know, you, you don't get that avalanche that when you're there uh, on it. And a lot of people have died there due to avalanches. And so that's one of those things where you have to say, okay, like, I, I'm comfortable with it, or not, I wouldn't say comfortable, but you realize it could happen. You know, there's some probability and, and, I don't know. I mean, it's people that are scared of flying. I think sometimes say, at least when I was a kid, I—I I don't actually not a kid, but I still remember thinking once, like, when the plane was taking off. You know what? If this is it, I've had a good run. I've had a good life. So I think that's, and when you do it that way, you you feel sort of gratitude for for what you have done and the time you have had, and so. You're right. I, I wish I, I wish uh, Allison would have spoken to that, but it sounds like, I mean, maybe part, maybe the best way is to not think about it. Maybe. Um, do you have any uh, picks of the
0: week or anything like that? Like maybe a golf pick for people. I I won mine last week. I remember. I, I think I said bet the um, the
2: Warriors and whatever they are in game two.
0: And and I won that. They won. By nice. 30. I mean, my,
2: my picks like so far generally don't win, but they're always like 45 to one or higher. So it, it's, it's a little tougher for them to win, but I'll go with a, a long, long shot for a golfer um, ish Matthew Neesmith, 150 to one. I make him 117 to one. There you go. Um, and if you want an even longer, long shot, uh, Doug Gim. You can get, there's 250 to ones out there on him, 175 to ones. I make him 159 to one.
0: I'm going to go with in my long out process of betting things and not knowing what the actual number is. I'm going to say Celtics in game six. If they lose game five, I obviously like them in game six or hope they win game six. And I think they're hopefully going to close this thing out in games in, in six games, but obviously uh, hopefully I'm not jinxing anything because tonight's a big game.
2: So yes, Rufus. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to pick. So this makes me feel like the podcast is about to end. Did What else did you want to talk about? I was going to, I wanted to ask some questions kind of related to our interview with Allison, but ask you. Sure. What we got 10 minutes. What, what experience have you had in your life? Something like Allison did where she didn't reach that summit um, or was she had to turn back on um, Mount Rosa? I mean, I'm I've, had a, I've had a fair it,
0: amount of failure in my but, life, and I think a lot about. Sorry, go ahead.
2: I was going to ask, though, like his was there a seminal moment of failure where you really grew from it, where you can look back and say this was this failure was necessary for me to get where I am now? I mean, I I have this
0: blackjack story that I tell all the time about losing, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in two hands of
2: blackjack and then coming back from it. Right. And that's, that's the marketable one, but do you have something in like maybe less sexy?
0: No, I, I think, I think it's not necessarily less sexy, but it's more, more real. I mean, I've, I've, I've lost jobs before I've, you know, I've like, um, you know, I've had situations in life that, um, you know, companies that I've sold, like everyone thinks like, Oh, it's incredible that you've sold four companies. Well, the reality is like, they weren't all incredible successes. They were, you know, I mean, people will say like, anytime you sell a company and it and you get money out of it, it's a, it's a success, but I wouldn't necessarily say that all of them have been like, you know, successes, they've been challenges. Um, you know, I've had tons of failure in my life. And like, I, I think you know I think the, the Giannis quote and then the way that she talked about it was fascinating to me because I think the fascinating thing was that she very markedly said that was failure, right? And, I, I right I mean, and, and I think the Giannis situation, like for him to say that the that, season was not a failure, and you had a lot of people on Twitter seeing his quote and being like, This is such a great lesson for kids, and we should we should market this for kids and Amazing. Like, I get it. I understand that we want our kids to be more focused on process and not necessarily, you know, worry. But like, the word failure needs to not be discouraging. It needs to be something that you accept happens. And I think one one of the things that you brought up a lot in the interview was this idea of, you know, things that are out of your control that drive failure and you know, I think, I think it's interesting because like, what, what if things are in your control and they drove you to failure and like, how do you come back from that? Because ultimately, you know, in my life, some of the failures I've had have been in my control and, and, you know, I've, I've, it's harder for sure, but it's also like motivating. Right. And that, that, that Buddhist notion, which I know, you know, that idea that accepting like where you are right now and not looking back on what you could have changed I think that's a super powerful notion in the world of sports betting specifically.
2: Yeah. And to your point, I think that for most things, there are things in, there are things outside your control, but things you also can control. So I'm sure Allison would say, well, you know, they had to pick what day they wanted to try to summit on. And a lot of that's looking at the weather and, and, essentially gauging the probability that the weather holds and you know if you don't go this day you know will there be as is, is good a day so there are these decisions to get made a lot of a lot of little decisions and it kind of culminated with having to turn back because of the weather but I'm sure there's always areas there's always things you can second guess and I I know that myself like in the betting space as well but yeah yeah
0: no, I mean, I, I again, like I go back to this idea, you know, especially right now, as I contemplate, like, what am I going to do next in my life? Like, what is the, what is the thing that I want to spend time on that motivates me? And, um, you know, a lot of, uh, when I think back on for me, this concept of like failure is interesting, right? Because what are things I failed in my life, in my life that, you know, I want to, like succeed now or something like is that
2: a mo- is it a
0: motivating factor? Sorry.
2: Well, I guess the question is how much, how much are you driven by sort of an achievement like a pinnacle reaching the Mount Everest of something, versus the process of of just the process. And and one thing I I kind of wanted to ask Allison actually that I think is interesting is as she's gotten older she mentioned that that you know not being willing to sort of take as many risks or, or wanting to be able to Come home, and I wonder if, if as you're younger, you're sort of more motivated by reaching that sort of pinnacle, climbing that mountain, getting to the top, versus it becomes more of just the the intrinsic joy of doing what you're doing as you get older. Have you also just
0: from from a from a personal standpoint, I know that she has like a a partner now uh, that like she just loves, and like she they moved to Colorado together, and like that's I was curious to ask her. And I'd already made one joke about like Pat, but like, you know, I was curious, like how much of like the fear or just wanting to come home has to be to do with come someone to come home to. Right. Um, and, you know, for me, as I've gotten older, a lot has changed for me in terms of like my kids and how much like, like providing for my kids and providing a life for my kids is so important to me um that that's honestly like for me the biggest delta the biggest thing that's changed since I was in my you know mid early 20s if I was in my mid early 20s n- again now knowing what I know I would go start a startup and just go you know like hair on fire do that again but I I can't do that with with kids
2: yeah i think age changes all of us
0: it's not just age and experience though, it, and no, and it's, it's changing the, it's, life circumstances, the life, circumstances the life circumstances. I think circumstances. for me, it, for me, it's not the age. Like I, I, even though I'm 50 and I'm old AF,
2: like I, you know, it's not a, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. But all I right, feel all, like for me, for me, my life circumstances haven't changed drastically yet. I feel like my perspective has changed though. All right, all
0: thanks for uh, listening this week. And uh, we'll talk to you guys all again next week.